Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey fellow time travelers, as always it's great to have you with me for another journey through space and time. Uh, before we start, can I say again thank you to everyone who signed up to Patreon, my Patreon site. It's the support that comes from the Patreon presence that enables everything else that Paul and I do together all the, the podcasts that have always been and always will be free are underscored and underwritten by Patreon uh, if you're not a member yet and you'd like to join uh, my ever growing Patreon family go to patreon.com search for me by name uh, and you'll have to part with a bit of cash uh, on a monthly or an annual basis uh, it's cheaper by the dozen uh, but you just follow the yellow brick road click on the buttons and whatever and, and become part of the family uh, and you can access the podcast question and answers. It's a, a community of free thinkers, uh, and, and coming to the Patreon uh, every week is, is a time to, I don't know, set everything else aside and just you know have an, have an hour away from everything else. Who could want for more? It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off for another episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Bursts of hopeful light are soon swallowed again by the ever-present, ever-patient dark. Born into obscurity and sold into servitude, found asleep and spared by a fierce lion, ever driving himself always forwards, building, conquering and seeking to change society. A mighty empire was born and a dynasty set in place. Violence, brutality and slaughter led to repentance as pragmatic tolerance, unification and order were sought within chaos. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In the last episode, you took us to ancient Greece as its civilization was flowering and simultaneously ripping itself apart with war. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Uh, well, we're, we're leaving Greece. Our, our point of departure, I suppose, is Greece. Uh, and we travel in the company of one of the ancient world's great, but probably by now and for most people, little known historians. And we're travelling from that part of the world that we know as Greece uh, into the subcontinent, what would become India. We're here as a self-made man rises to power, uh, founding the Mauryan dynasty uh, and shining a brief burst of light. 
we're back in the subcontinent, India. There are many people now, you know, in the, in the generations since the Second World War who, who are connected to the subcontinent. But for the majority of the population living in Britain, India is, is a faraway place. The subcontinent is a faraway and mysterious place. We often don't really even register how big it is, just as a geographical entity, how, how strange it is. You know, because of the way it hangs down like, a, like an inverted triangle off part of Asia into the Indian Ocean, it has a, an unexpected climate. The way that the, the monsoons and the climate affect that subcontinent are not necessarily what would be expected given its position on the globe. India has been different from the beginning. Long, long ago, the, the bits and pieces of, of Hinduism and the caste system came together to create something really that, that transcends ideas of nation or state. India is, is and always has been most affected by Hinduism. It has worked in concert with the people and the populations to create an entity that has a a gravitational pull that holds itself together and people have come in from the outside other cultures, other populations other religions have come in from outside but never to the extent that they've really fundamentally changed India it, it keeps on digesting everything that, everything that comes into it and so for, for most of us in the West without those connections to the subcontinent it's a place of mystery it was unaffected by the West for the longest time. There was so much going on. You know, from time to time, whatever was happening in India was affecting about a quarter of the, of the population alive in the world. And they weren't really bothered about what was happening in Europe. Far from it. The outside influences that they were experiencing, Europe and, and our concerns mattered to India not a jot. Especially now, we're more and more polarised in the West. You know, people are being... Uh, driven, pushed to, to define themselves in terms of groups. Everything's about black and white, or good and bad, or left and right, and identity politics have fairly got us by the throat now, so that we're not encouraged to think of ourselves first and foremost as sovereign individuals, but as avatars, representatives of groups that are determined by race and by gender and, and religion, you know, increasingly and perversely and in a way that I don't see how it helps, differences are declared as more defining than anything that might transcend groups and offer unity. We're being encouraged to think of ourselves as being the members of groups that have less and less in common with one another. And it's it's a strange way to go about things, really, because any meaningful research demonstrates again and again and again that there are more differences within groups than there are between groups. That's just a fact. You know, if you define a group as women and another group as men, there are fewer differences between the groups than there are within the groups. So to constantly be being driven to, to separate and atomise and and see ourselves not as people but as somehow the sum total of our various racial and physical and sexual characteristics. I don't know why that's supposed to help anybody. The way in which we're being driven into smaller and smaller groups 
more and more isolated one from another. It has been pushed on populations before. And in many ways, it's just interesting to note that from time to time, and usually only briefly, there have been attempts at something else in other places. And one of those attempts takes us to India at this point for another moment in the story of the world. Somewhere around 300 BC, that's the, that's the, you know, think about that as, a, as the time frame that we're in today. 300 years before the birth of Christ, a character called Megasthenes, there's a name which is surely unfamiliar to most, uh, some will have heard of Megasthenes. He was a Greek historian and writer. I say historian. His writings were strange and have been dismissed by subsequent writers as, as fantasy. Nonetheless, he was a Greek historian and he was sent to India. He was sent on a mission that lasted years. A fantastic odyssey of a journey. He was sent on this mission by Seleucus I Nicator. Part of that word Nicator is Nike. You know, that idea of victory. Nike shoes, victory. There's the etymological roots there. Seleucus I Nicator was one of the generals in Alexander the Great's army. When Alexander the Great died, the various generals that were left behind, they sorted out for themselves the divvying up of his empire. Ptolemy got Egypt, for example. Well, Seleucus inherited a big chunk of Western Asia. Now, Alexander and his army, he got to India, but he got no further than that part of it that we would know as the Punjab in the northwest, So he kind of got just, just over the doorway, just over the sill into India. But his army refused to go any further for all sorts of reasons, exhaustion being not the least of them. But Megasthenes, who was sent into India by one of the successors to Alexander the Great, Seleucus, he reached all the way to Bengal and into Orissa in the east so he, rather than just being stuck in the northwest, he got all the way across and into the eastern part of the subcontinent. And fascinating character, Megasthenes. He, he met, encountered, let's say, all sorts of people, all sorts of different tribes and cultural microcosms. And he came up with a book called Indica, I-N-D-I-K-E. It's gone now. There are no copies of Indica. Uh, but it was widely quoted after his time by other writers and so although we don't have the book itself, we can piece a lot of it together by what was quoted subsequently by the writers. And it was a very strange place that he described. He described encountering people who had feet that pointed backwards with eight toes on each foot. And he described people that instead of legs, they walked on snakes. You know, they had snakes coming down from their hip bones and they walked on them. And he talked about whole tribes that didn't eat and, and lived by breathing in smells. So it's probably a reflection of something that's eternal, really, but it probably reflects, by the standards of his time, the way in which isolated groups react with suspicion to outsiders and the ideas that they build up about people that they don't really know, maybe just had the merest encounters with, and by a process of Chinese whispers, by the time their description of them has passed through many people, it can come out as all kind of strangeness. So by the time Megasthenes was asking people about the neighbours, he would be getting all sorts of strange descriptions as a result of that. He was sent into India soon after Seleucus 
had signed a treaty with an Indian king called Chandragupta. So, you know, that's the context. There's been some, some sort of agreement reached, some sort of diplomacy has taken place, and there's some sort of agreement of cooperation between Seleucus and Chandragupta. And Chandragupta is the founder of the Mauryan dynasty. And here's where we come to the moment. It exists in, in the realm of folklore and tradition more than anything else. It would be very hard to say that this is fact that's coming at you now, but folklore and tradition ought not to be dismissed because things that last, ideas that are passed down through generations, however fanciful they might sound to us, you have to respect the fact that the ideas within them have been deemed important enough generation after generation to sustain, to keep being remembered. So it's always always important to pay attention to memories that last, whatever they are and however unbelievable they might sound, because you have to allow for there having been a reason or there still being a reason why the memory persists. So in the moment that matters, if you like, Chandragupta, according to the folklore, had a meeting he met when he was a youngster, Alexander the Great. In the aftermath, he had a dream, Chandragupta dreamt, that he was licked all over by a lion. He was in the grip of a lion that, rather than doing him any harm, uh, just licked him all over with its its big rough tongue. And Chandragupta awoke as a a relative youngster from this dream, transformed. The, The Chandragupta that went to sleep was quite different psychologically from the Chandragupta that woke up after the dream. And what the dream did to him was persuade him, convince him that he was destined for greatness. We know that Chandragupta was was an individual who came from obscurity and poverty, but drove himself to the highest levels. That's really the... How he did it matters less, or why he did it matters less as well than the fact that he did do it. He transformed himself from someone obscure to someone who founded an empire. Okay, so give the devil his due. We're around 300 BC and from the 6th century BC, from about 300 years earlier, there was a kingdom in part of the subcontinent called Magadha. It'd been there a long time. By 321 BC, Chandragupta, post-dream, now with his sense of self, raised an army and overthrew the king of Magadha. And upon the foundations of Magadha, he raised the Mauryan Empire. So the backstory to the creation of the Mauryan Empire is the transformation of Chandragupta from poor boy licked by lion in dream to someone who thinks that there are no limits on his potential and the and the reality is that he he becomes the founder of the Mauryan empire and it spread in his lifetime to take in both the indus and the ganges valleys so they're on opposite sides east and west of the widest part of the indian subcontinent and it also took in his empire took in afghanistan and parts of what we would know as Pakistan and Iran. So, a very considerable territory. 
This was the India of Megasthenes. This was the India that Megasthenes wrote about in Indica. And here's why it matters in the story of the world. The Mauryan Empire was that attempt that we were talking about at the beginning of this to do something different. You know, rather than just do the same old divisive polarising stuff. The Mauryan Empire, under Chandragupta and his successors, saw an attempt to try and alter the India of the caste system. The India that Chandragupta inherited, in a sense, was one dominated on the one hand by the Brahmin priests of the Hindu tradition. Obviously, by then, Buddhism was in the Indian subcontinent. The Buddha was, you know, was born and lived five, six hundred years BC. So that was Buddhism was established there as well. The caste system that has shaped the destinies of billions of people by now. It was already in place. It was well established. That was the India that Chandragupta inherited. But nonetheless, there was this attempt made to do something different, which it, it wasn't Chandragupta's, but he, he set the ball rolling by pulling together as much of the empire as he did. Because obviously you can't do something collective and inclusive until you've got the whole place pulled together. That part of it is what happened under Chandragupta. He was succeeded by his son, Bindusar, about whom less is known. He may have carried out a lot of the work of expanding the Mauryan Empire into the south, you know, gradually working down the inverted pyramid. If he didn't, that was certainly achieved under his son Ashoka, who put the hand of the Mauryan Empire right across the subcontinent. The India of Megasthenes is unreliable. It's, it's fanciful and it's a mixture of fact and fiction and hearsay and all the rest of it. But by the time we get to the Mauryan Empire under Ashoka, it's being written about by other writers from other creeds and from other places. So we have more credible stuff about Ashoka's Mauryan Empire than we have about Chandragupta's. And what we do know is that by around the middle years of the 3rd century BC, Ashoka was in the habit of having his ideas his philosophy, his rules for the operation of society, inscribed on natural bedrock and on stone columns all across the empire so that people had access to a unifying way of thinking. Okay, A bit like the steel of Hammurabi that we talked about right at the very beginning of the story of the world in a hundred moments. Here were words all coming from one source that began to give people the opportunity to come together. Ashoka is interesting in, in many ways. He, he converted to Buddhism, away from the, the Hinduism of his birth. He had become a Buddhist, but part of his expansion of his empire took in the conquest of Orissa in the east. And it, it definitely involved a terrible slaughter. You know, he put men, women and children to the sword. And in the aftermath of that, he repented. And in fact... Almost in a kind of Damascene moment, he decided that violence was unacceptable and he turned his back on violent ways ever after. So it was in the aftermath of Orissa and, and turning to peaceable ways that he started sending out his edicts and his ideals that started to appear all over the place so that people could see them. One of the words that has been applied to Ashoka's way of thinking is Dharma. It's one of those words, and this is almost more fascinating than anything else, it has no ideal translation into English. 
you have to come from the from that Indian culture to get Dharma. It has within it, though, ideas about there being a natural way of things, almost like an invisible river that's flowing through the universe. And you can either go with the flow of that invisible torrent, or you can try and swim against it or across it. But clearly the message is that the easiest way is to swim with it and be carried. You know, don't, don't go against the grain, go with the grain, go with the way of nature. And obviously that, that sounds a bit like the way, the Tao Te Ching that, that we've already talked about, that idea of there being a way, natural, that existed before us and that will be there long after we are gone. And you can either go with it and make your life easier or you can go against it and take the consequences. So Dharma is one of the ways of describing the philosophy of Ashoka. And within it, key to it was tolerance especially tolerance of religion, which may in many ways have been a reflection of pragmatism on the part of Ashoka. Because his empire, although he was notionally in control of this vast landmass that is the subcontinent or a large part thereof, he did not have the what you would call the state capacity to rule it in any meaningful way. He didn't have the communications and the roads and the networks really to pull it all together. So it may have been pragmatic to to get in ahead of rebellion and say, broadly speaking, you can kind of do what you like. There's probably a sensible, wise pragmatism about it. It definitely wasn't all benevolent. I mean, don't get the idea that Ashoka was some kind of hippie, you know, all peace and love. There was a secret police force. There were officials who were keeping an eye, watching, spying ears to the ground, you know, snitching and feeding back into a central point. There was also a bureaucracy, pen pushers who were collecting tax. That's what, you know, state bureaucracy always does. And the the tax was being collected, though, to pay for large-scale projects. Irrigation, on large-scale irrigation, things that would have been beyond the reach of individual communities, you know, that needed, you know, national investment. Also, Quite charmingly, in a way, he saw to the planting of endless avenues of banyan trees along the roads, specifically to provide shade for travellers, <laughs> you know, so that you know people making you know vast distances could could walk or or ride in the shade. It's that moment of coming from Chandragupta with his dream, which enables him or empowers him or inspires him to create the Mauryan Empire. And his grandson Ashoka embarks on this experiment, this wild experiment of, of religious tolerance. Live and let live. Dharma. Following the irresistible river of, of the universe. And you could say that it was an attempt by him to bring order out of chaos. That kind of laissez-faire tolerance enabled a a kind of gentle, natural order to establish itself. And it was achieved by letting people be. He famously, one of his lines, one of his quotable quotes is, all men are my children. So that he was seeing himself in that that paternal sense, that whoever they were, whatever colour they were, whatever they believed, whatever their religion, it was fine by him, they were all his children. As we said at the top, it's not normal 
to embark on something like that. Tolerance seldom lasts. And his vision did not outlive him. It's always the way, it's so often the way that for as long as one person, one strong, committed individual is there at the top of the triangle, they can exert a positive force. But after he was gone, that gravitational pull, that centre, was gone and the whole thing kind of fell apart like a, like a sandcastle drying out under the relentless Indian sun. And caste and Brahmin Hinduism were just too deeply embedded. They were there in the DNA of the subcontinent by that point. And without Ashoka, the next empire or dynasty that arose was Brahmin. So after Ashoka, Brahmin Hinduism came back in. I have it as a moment. I have that as a moment because unifying ideas based on tolerance, based on dharma, they never last. They're like butterflies' wings. You know, they might be beautiful, but they're fragile. And bursts of hopeful light are soon swallowed again by the ever-present, ever-patient dark. It's fascinating how that long ago the cultures were trying to get to grips with each other and learn about each other. You, you don't think of them sort of travelling around the world and bonding and, and finding out. I know. It's, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Was it the case that you just, now and again, you, the individuals like Herodotus or Homer or Megasthenes, did, are these just individuals who are by nature curious and it's them who persuade or find a way to, you know, get a solution to, to okay and maybe finance a personal mission. Who, know, who knows whose idea Megasthenes' journey actually was? You know, did, did Seleucus send him or was Megasthenes determined to do it and just sought the you know the the you know the, the sponsorship of of the most obvious uh, bag of money. It's, it's difficult to know, and but yes, undoubtedly there have always been attempts to send people on fact-finding missions, find out more, and bring back the news. We're used to that happening instantaneously. You know, someone shoots a TikTok video on their phone across 30 seconds, and you know, a nanoseconds later, it's it's there for everyone to see all over the planet. You go back to 300 BC, things took years. But it's useful to be reminded that even without technology, these things were possible. You know, in the, in the, in the love letter to the British Isles, you know, talked about the, the Amesbury archer, an individual who was born somewhere south of the Pyrenees, but ended up living out the latter part of his life in the southwest of England. Now, he must have walked. You know, so... Although these attempts to, to find out more and to go, they would have taken longer. They possibly don't take as long as you think. If you're determined to walk from Calais to the subcontinent, well, you could. You need a bit of luck. You need to avoid accident and, you know, the attentions of nefarious types. But hypothetically, you know, it's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other. You know, you can walk around the world. We can acquire information from far off places instantaneously, but yes, there have always been those that are curious and set out to see what was over the horizon and then 
came back and wrote books about it and those books were disseminated and, and circulated and you know the information spread. It's the same process, it just takes longer. It's just great that it it's an ongoing thing that we always as humans do. Uh uh-huh. and we're curious. And, and, and as I said at the top, you know, it, it just remains the case that that most of us most of us don't know very much about the wider world. We just don't. And, you know, if, if you were to stop 100 people in the street and say, tell me something about India 300 years before the birth of Christ, most people are going to struggle with that. So the paradox is that although we've got access now at our fingertips to the sum total of human knowledge in phones in our pockets... Most of us can't join up the dots. You know, my, 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 I was I was inspired in part to do the story of the world in a hundred moments because something my, my wife Trudy often said would be watching something on television, something something factual, a documentary. Let's say it was about I don't know um, Tudor England, and Trudy would say, "What do you think was happening in Africa then?" And I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd really have I would really have to think. Even though we've got access to all the information that a human being could want, when, when you actually stop to think, when you actually try and join up the dots, that's what the story of the world in 100 moments is all about. It's an attempt to join some dots that spread across 5,000 years. That, that, you know, that, how do you make sense of 5,000 years of world history? Well, to some extent you can't, because too much has happened for any one person to get a grip of. But that, this, was, this is just my attempt to join some dots, that's all. Following their own path, cut off and separated, adapting, settling, developing and evolving over a huge landmass, art, religion, ritual and civilizations developed, human sacrifice, a preoccupation with death, and great thinkers developed calendars and a grasp that time has no beginning and no end. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening and maybe write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Allthorpe Studios, and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Okay. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I am Dori Shafrir, the co-host of the podcast Forever 35, which is all about the things we do to take care of ourselves. And starting next week, we have a new co-host. It's me. I'm Elise Hugh. I am an author, journalist, and a podcaster. Yay! Elise and I are going to be getting into a lot of the same topics that we've always talked about on Forever 35, like skincare, like getting older, and of course, Forever 35 faves like butt care and Costco. She said Costco. I said it. I'm so excited to be coming along on this journey. I am so excited to have you. So listen to Forever 35 wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 